0: At this time, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Do many of you guys remember the old peanuts cartoons? You, you, when you think about those old peanuts cartoons, what did the adults sound like when they were talking? You remember? Wah, 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 wah. Those of you that remember the peanuts, right? Charlie Brown and Lucy, you know, Linus, and and what they perceived to be was this this person, this adult, this teacher talking in the background. (laughs) Now, has that ever happened to you before? You were talking, and the person was looking at you as if you were an adult in a Peanuts cartoon, just tuning you out. Or maybe you were the one that was talking, and everybody else was tuning you out. Maybe that's what's going on right now. Maybe to you, I sound like an adult in a peanuts cartoon. Wah, 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 wah. I mean, there's so many voices that we hear all week. Voices that come to us all week. The buzz of the television. We get emails on our phones, we've got websites, we've got blogs, we've got Facebook, we've got YouTube, we've got telephone calls, we've got the radio. There's voices coming all around us all the time, and if we're honest with ourselves, some of these voices just aren't that important. Some of these voices are just plain silly. They're mindless. But what about the gospel? What about the gospel, the glorious news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God, the call to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Does this voice, does this message rise above all of the other messages that come to us throughout the week? And it seems like in our culture... The message of Jesus and his gospel is received as if it is being told by an adult in a Peanuts cartoon. It's just irrelevant. It's just a din. It's just a drone. It's just a buzz. It's boring. An endless droning that gets lost in all the other messages that come to us that we're bombarded with every day. You see, we've been looking at this issue of being a missional church a church that sees itself as being on mission, being sent out by God on a mission to engage the culture, to display God's glory, to declare God's gospel, to disciple for God's great commission as we engage the culture. And as we talked about the past few weeks, there's going to be two responses to the gospel that we're going to face when we engage culture. The first response is shock. That's what we saw last week, shock. Hostility, outright persecution, remember paul was was stoned and left for dead, and he was outside the city and then he, he came back into the city and proclaimed the message of Christ shock, but the exact opposite is ambivalence, ambivalence. We live in an ambivalent culture, culture that just doesn 't care about the gospel christianity well it's it 's irrelevant doesn 't really make much sense it 's boring. It's, you hear people say things like, well, that's great for your life. If it's worked for you, that's great. But, but, but for me, it's just not that big of a deal. I don't see any, any benefit for me. They're not outright shocked. They're not hostile. They're not stoning you and leaving for you for dead outside the city. They just don't care. It's just ambivalent. So for this morning, what I want us to do is to, I want us to point to another episode in the life of Paul. Last week, Paul was in a town where he got stoned. He got beaten. He goes back in and preaches the gospel, outright hostility. Today, we're going to look at Paul in Athens. Different context, different culture. Instead of being stoned and left for dead, he just receives this um, ambivalence, this disinterested condensation, uh, condescending ambivalence of the culture. So if you've got a copy of God's word, let's turn to Acts chapter 17, 16 through 34. And would somebody do me a favor and just close those back doors for me? Thank you. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And see himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find Him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, in image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There's many similarities between the culture of Athens and our culture today. And as was Paul's missionary method... Paul would often go to the Jews first. He would go to a synagogue. He would go to the town. He would find the Jewish people because, you see, the Jewish people, they had the Old Testament. They had the Scriptures. They believed in one God. And so he would go and he would reason with them. He'd try to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. There was a common ground between Paul and the Jewish people because at least they believed in one God. At least they had the Old Testament Scriptures. But oftentimes he would not get anywhere with the Jewish people and so he'd go out into the marketplace, he'd go out and start engaging pagan people, people that didn't have any clue about the Old Testament. And so here's what Paul does. He goes to Athens, which is a town steeped in Greek philosophy, all these pantheons of gods, Zeus, um, Hermes, Artemis, all these different, these, these, these Greek gods. And he goes to this town. And what we see Paul doing is engaging the culture and being missional. So what I want us to do is look at how does Paul engage this pagan culture, a culture very similar to our culture. The first thing he does, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens. He looks around and his spirit was provoked within him because of all the idols. His spirit was provoked because of all the idols. He, he goes around and sees the architecture, the beauty, the grandeur of this great city Athens, the center of the Greek-speaking world, and, and he's, he's bothered, he's provoked. It means that there was this anger that welled up inside of him. There was this, this irritation, this, this inner provoking when he saw all of the idolatry around him. Uh, he, He was viewing this city through the eyes of God. And so the question I had to ask this week is, is how do we respond to the idolatry, not just all around us in our culture, but how do we respond to the idolatry in our very own hearts? Are we bothered? Are we bothered by the idols that this world is so engulfed in? And you see, Paul could have come to Athens as a tourist, He could have walked in and said, oh, there's the Parthenon. There's all these great tourist attractions. I'm going to go. I'm waiting for Paul. I mean, I'm waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. I'll just be a tourist and kind of wait around. I'll take in the museums. I'll take in the sights. I'll take in the sounds. I'll be a tourist. That's not what Paul does. Paul is not a tourist. He's a missionary. He goes straight and he begins to engage the culture. But I think for a lot of us as Christians, we engage our culture as tourists. We're so enamored by what this culture has to offer that we try to just go and and look at the sights and look at the sounds and take in the culture, mesmerized by the culture, and we're being tourists instead of missionaries. We're not engaging the culture like a missionary, being missional. And so Paul has this inner anger, this inner, he's bothered. He sees these idols. But you know what? When we see the idolatry around us, yes, it should bother us but it should bother us to the point of compassion. Because you see, when lost people are engaged in idolatry, they are prisoners of war. The world, the flesh, and the devil has captivated them to do their will. And so they're not the enemy. They are prisoners of war. And so as they're wrapped up in all of this idolatry, yes, it should bother us, but it should drive us to compassion for them. What did Jesus say in Matthew 9, 36? This is what it says of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion really means Jesus is, he was moved to the inner depth of his being. And so if we're going to be a missional church, we've got to balance this being, being, being provoked in our spirit over idolatry, yes, but it should move us to compassion that these people are prisoners of war. They're captured and they're in bondage to all types of idolatry. So what does Paul do? He goes right to the marketplace. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day, every day with those who happened to be there. The marketplace, the agora. You see, in those days, they didn't have Facebook. Didn't have the internet. Didn't have CNN, Fox News. Didn't have all of the stuff that we had. Where they would go was the marketplace. You've probably seen this on movies or or read this in history books. It's it's a place where everybody came together. They would sell goods and services. They would also set up, like teachers would come and, and set up shop and they'd begin to teach and people would gather around them and there'd be town criers that would run back and forth through the town and they'd be crying out information. So this was just the hub of society where everybody met to exchange ideas, to buy and sell goods. This was the Facebook, if you will of that culture where everybody got together. And so Paul is going to begin to engage these Epicurean Stoic philosophers. Paul's going to engage some philosophers. Now, before I talk to you about who these philosophers are, let me just say something about the Greek culture in Athens. If you go back and read some history books about Athens, you would realize that it's very unpopular, very offensive, downright hateful to say there was only one God. You see, they believed in a multiplicity of gods. And so to come along and say, Jesus is the only God, and actually, if you look back at some of the history books, Christians were called hate mongers for saying that Jesus was the only way. Does that sound familiar? It happened in Athens. So he goes to these Epicureans, Stoics. Epicureans. Let's talk about the Epicurean philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers, their philosophy was this, maximum pleasure, minimum pain. You only live this life once, so you might as well get as much pleasure in this world. Live for yourself. Live for pleasure. Um, the, the sky's the limit. Everything revolves around pleasure. Pain? Don't want it. Avoid pain at all costs. I, I want to numb the pain. I want pleasure. Does that sound like our culture today? A culture that wants all pleasure, no pain. That was the Epicurean philosophy. The Stoics, on the other hand... They were the exact opposite. Grin and bear it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This life is hard, so I'm going to dig my heels in. I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to rely upon myself. I don't need any help. Whatever comes, comes. I can handle it. I'm just going to grin and bear it and do the best I can to survive life. And having lived in northeastern Colorado for the past six years, I see both of these attitudes, especially the stoic attitude. I can't tell you how many times I've met someone, and I don't know if it's part of this whole farmer, this whole agricultural, oil field, railroad mentality that that we can handle life. We don't need help. We're very self-reliant. We're very prideful. We're very, I can be independent. I can face life on my own. I don't need help. So Paul engages both extremes here. These pleasure seekers and these people that had this attitude that I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. And what do they call Paul? Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They call Paul a babbler. That word babbler really means seed picker. It's the image of a gutter sparrow going through and picking seeds out of the gutter. It actually was a metaphor for this. A babbler or a seed picker was one that was a garbage collector. You would go through the marketplace and you would collect all this garbage. And what they were saying was, Paul is a a jack of all trades, but a master of none. He's borrowing from all these different places. He's borrowing from all these different philosophies. He's just this babbler. We have no idea what he's saying. Especially when he talked about the gospel. Notice what he was saying. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Christ. He was preaching Jesus. He was talking about the gospel, and they were scratching their heads like, what is this guy talking about? I mean, does that sound familiar in our culture as well? And so what do they do? They bring him up to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill. Wyatt. Can you guys please be quiet? Thank you. They bring him to Mars Hill. Verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 19. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are printing, presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They bring him to Mars Hill the Areopagus, this place where they wanted to, to hear his ideas. This was, again, there, there's no CNN, there's no Fox News, there's no Facebook, there's no blogging, there's no Internet. This is the cultural hub of their society. And so they say, Paul, tell us what, tell us what you're saying. We, we want to hear something new. They, they, wanted, they, they were fascinated with something new. They wanted to talk about something new. This is a new teaching. We want to hear it. We want something new. Isn't that the way our culture is? We always want something new. Whether it's the new video game or the new blog or the new TV show or the new talking head on Fox News or the new Facebook friend. We all want something new. And so Paul begins to preach a message. And I want you to pay close attention to how Paul engages them. Remember, these people are pagans. These people don't know anything about the Old Testament. And Paul could have come in, and you know Paul could have done this, right? You know Paul well enough. He could have come in guns blazing and said, you guys turn or burn, fly or fry, get your act together, you pagan people. He could have come in guns blazing and just blasted them. But that's not what he does. Remember, these people are ignorant they're pagans they're they're living in idolatry and so paul engages them in a little different way he engages them with gentleness and respect first peter 3 15 through 16 says this but in your hearts regard christ the lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in christ may be put to shame so how does paul engage them what does paul do why why is why is this so interesting what paul does notice what he says verse 22 paul standing in the midst of the areopagus said men of athens i perceive that in every way you are very religious he's not really putting them down he's asking a very good question I'm seeing all this stuff going on, and I see that you're pretty religious. I guess, I guess in our culture, it would be something like this. I see that you're pretty spiritual. And nobody wants to be religious, do they? But when you say, hey, I, I see that you're a spiritual person. You, you, send, you have some spirituality here. And that's what Paul's doing. And Paul says, I'm walking around, I'm looking at all these idols that's provoked me in my heart, and I've come across this one idol, and there's this title before the idol that says, To an unknown God. Now, now, what's this deal with this unknown God? Now, remember, this is the Greek culture of the pantheon of gods, Greek mythology, Zeus, Hermes, Artemis, Apollos. If you wanted to take a sea voyage, you prayed to Apollo to make sure that you had a good sea voyage. If you were going to get a, uh, a speech, you'd, you'd pray to the God of Hermes to give you a good, a good speech. You never gave your allegiance to just one God. In the Greek pantheon of gods, you had to cover your bases because if you know anything about Greek mythology, these gods would often get mad at each other. They'd often take it out upon human beings. And so these people lived in fear that they may be offending a god they didn't even know about. And so to cover their bases, because they didn't know any better, living in fear, they said, okay, we're just going to put a blanket unknown god out there to cover our bases in case there's one god out there we've offended. We've got our bases covered, the unknown god. And so Paul subtly confronts their ignorance. He doesn't ream them for their stupidity. He says, I'm going to tell you something. This unknown God that you guys are are worried about offending, let me tell you who the unknown God is to you. And he goes on to preach the true God. And he starts with creation. Notice what he does. Verse 23. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He starts with creation. Oftentimes in our postmodern culture that doesn't have any biblical um, um, information, they, li- they live in biblical ignorance, a lot of times we've got to start all the way back at creation. Now, Paul doesn't get out Scripture verses and start quoting Scripture verses. Everything he says is from the Bible. But he say, he starts with just a fundamental truth. There is a God. He is the creator God. He is the sovereign God. He is the ruler God. He is the one true God. This is the God who created you. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, something I think that's very interesting. I mean, verse 25. I love verse 25. Nor is he served by humans' hands as though he needed anything. This God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything. Anytime you say God needs something, you're you're on, you're on dangerous ground because God does not need anything. He's a sovereign, powerful God who gives life to all people. And then he goes on to say that um, God in his providence has been forming nations. He's been forming races and boundaries. He says um, in verse um, 25, Nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the giver of life. God is the giver of breath. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of a dwelling place. God in his providence has has created man in his own image, and from Adam has created nations and races, and, and his providence has created the world the way it is, so that because we are created in the image of God, we might look and worship this one true God, is what Paul is saying. And notice what he does. He begins to quote from their own poets and their own philosophers verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a Cretan poem by a guy named Epinimetus. I don't even know if I pronounced that right, but hey, it's good enough for me. And another guy, for we are indeed his offspring, a guy who, Eritus who wrote a poem. Paul quotes from their rock stars, their culture. Now, we need to be real careful here, okay? These guys aren't inspired It's not like you go out there and say, let's just start quoting from Bono of U2 and make that scripture. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is that Paul understood the culture and he was able to make a bridge. He was able to make a bridge and say... You guys are, are talking about these things in your philosophy. You're talking about these things in your music, and your poems. You guys are kind of close, but let me just steer you clear to what the biblical truth is. And you don't have to be an expert on culture. Please don't be an expert on culture. You don't have to read everything and know everything about everything. The point is, is that Paul knew enough to begin to make some gospel bridges. And then verse 29 is really the key to Paul's sermon. Verse 29. He says this, "...being then God's offspring..." We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What Paul says is you guys are really being idolaters. At the core of the issue is idolatry. You are creating in your mind, in your heart, with your hands, an idol. And that's not the true God. He's not an idol. Now, there are two ways you can engage culture to expose sin. You've got to expose sin. If you do not expose sin and idolatry in the human heart, you're not going to get very far in your gospel presentations. You've got to talk about sin. And there's two primary ways to do it. I think both of these work sometimes more effectively than others. The first way is by using the law. You've probably heard of the way of the master, Kirk Cameron, Ray Comfort. You use the law to confront a person in their sin. You use the Ten Commandments. You go through and ask them if they've broken the Ten Commandments. And that is a very helpful way of doing it. And that works in a lot of cases. But sometimes that doesn't work. Especially if you have a person that does not have a Judeo-Christian background, that doesn't believe in one God, that's very spiritual, that's very pantheistic. that They they may not buy the fact that I have to be accountable to this one God. And so you may have to use another approach. The, The Ten Commandments approach is a great approach, but you may have to use another approach. Another approach is to go straight to the issue of idolatry. Because everybody is an idolater whether they know it or not. You just have to get them to understand that they're an idolater. And here's a question you may ask someone. What motivates you? What drives you? What are you living your life for? What's the most important thing to you? You ask questions like that, it becomes very personal. And it may be a job, it may be a spouse, it may be a child, it may be a hobby, it may be a career. And so you begin to probe and say, well, well, tell me about that. If that's the most important thing to you, if that's what you're living for, what if that person or that thing disappoints you? What if that thing is taken away from you? What if your, 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 your idol is your job and you lose your job? What if your idol is your, your spouse and you... How do you handle losing what's most important to you? Have you ever thought about the fact that you are elevating something to a position of godhood that it was never meant to have? And if those things are taken away from you, you become frustrated, you become angry, and, and what, whether you know it or not, you're enslaved to the thing that you've made an idol out of. You're in bondage to those things. And so what you do is you expose the fact that they are idols at their heart. They're in bondage. They're serving something that will always let them down. And then what you say is this. You've got to get to the gospel. There's a God in heaven. He created you you are not an accident. God created you in his image so that you would worship him. You are not worshiping him. You are worshiping yourself. You're worshiping an idol. God says to repent from this idol and turn and trust in the living God. Trust in Jesus Christ, because if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God will remain upon you. So you were created to worship the one true God. You're not worshiping him. You need to worship him. And notice what Paul does. Paul just kind of keeps moving here. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul urges them to repent. Now, Paul's very engaging. Paul's very gentle. Paul's very subtle. Paul's very captivating. Paul is using bridges. Paul is is using their own own poets. But there comes a point where Paul says, okay, all that's out the window. You got to repent you got to repent. He begins to preach repentance. He preaches sin, he preaches judgment. There is no gospel without repentance, without sin, without these things. And Paul doesn't sugarcoat him. He says, there's a day of judgment. As a matter of fact, the day of judgment hasn't been appointed by the man who Christ rose, whom God has raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And because Christ is the resurrected Christ, there is a day of judgment. He is going to judge the living and the dead. Now this was a foreign concept for these Greeks. The whole idea of an end times judgment was foreign to them. They had no concept. In Greek mythology, there's nothing of an end times judgment where you stand before the living God and are judged based upon your life. There there was no concept for that. That did not compute. Oftentimes in our culture today, people scoff at the idea of an end times judgment. Heaven, hell, it doesn't matter. We're just going to die anyway. People don't understand the judgment. They didn't understand the resurrection also. Resurrection? You see, if Paul would have said... Something about you know being spirit beings out in the ether, floating around in some new age spirituality, they probably would have nodded their head and said, "Oh, okay." But he says, "No, there's a resurrection. Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. The crucified Christ has risen." And so Paul says, "Okay, I'm going to engage the culture. I'm going to build bridges." I'm going to try to to be as gentle and composed as I can. I'm going to use gospel bridges. I'm going to try to get a hearing. But eventually, you've got to get to the point where you share about sin, repentance, and the gospel. And I want you to notice the response. You really see three responses here in the life of Paul in this situation in Athens. What's the first response? Look at verse 32. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There's response one. Contempt. Thumb their noses at it. Ambivalence. This is stupid. This, what are you talking about resurrection? What are you talking about judgment? What are you talking about Jesus? Uh, I, this is stupid. I, now, it's not downright hostility where they, they take Paul out and they stone him and they leave him for dead. There's just this kind of condescending ambivalence. There's this contempt. You're a babbler. I have no idea what you're talking about, but what you're saying is irrelevant. I don't understand it. They thumb their noses at it. That's the first response, contempt. The second response, curiosity. Look, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Something about what Paul said piqued their curiosity. Now, they're not totally ready to accept Christ at that moment, but they're not outright rejecting Paul. Maybe they're just confused. And they say, Paul, we're curious. We want to know a little bit more about What's going on here? And it could be that God is in the process of possibly drawing that person to himself. Now... In Emmanuel, we believe in sovereign regeneration. We believe that if a person's going to get saved, God is going to sovereignly come and regenerate them. God's going to cause them to be born again. God's going to take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. God's going to open the eyes. God's going to do all of these things to bring about the salvation of a lost sinner. God is sovereign in salvation. But let me just say this. In God's providence, it may take longer than what we would expect. It could take longer for a person to actually be converted because they may have more baggage. They may have more doubts. They may have a harder heart. And the first time you share Christ with them, it may not be the first time they automatically receive the gospel. It may take multiple, multiple, multiple times to engage them until they finally trust God. And so God may be using you as the process to bring about their conversion. But I can tell you this with all confidence when it's their time to be converted, God will do it in His timing, in His way. God will graciously bring them to salvation. God will draw them to Christ, but it may take longer than what you and I expect. How many times do you want to see instant conversion? Share the gospel, raise the hand, salvation on the spot. Has that happened a lot in your life? Usually it's multiple times of sharing multiple times of engaging, multiple times of explaining. People need it clarified. And then when that point in time comes where God regenerates them, he's using you to bring about that moment in time. Let me give you some encouragement from 2 Timothy. There are some things in evangelism that you absolutely cannot control, but there are some other things in evangelism that you can absolutely control. And let's not confuse the two. 2 Timothy 24 through 26 tells us whose role it is in doing what in evangelism okay so let's look at this passage of scripture the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness okay just leave the slide right there these are the things that you are in control of doing you can be not quarrelsome You can be kind to people. You can be nice. You can be engaging. You can be polite. That's one thing you can control. Second thing he says is you can be able to teach. You can learn the knowledge. You can learn the Bible. You you can teach other people uh, patiently enduring evil. You can patiently endure with someone. You you may have to present the gospel to them over and over. You have to endure with them and be patient with them and walk alongside them. You can control that. Correcting your opponents with gentleness. You can correct them when they're wrong. You can come alongside and say, no, that's not that's not exactly right these are the things that you can control but what's the one thing you can't control notice verse the, the second half of that verse god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will god may perhaps grant them repentance god may not it's up to god whether he's going to do that You can't save anybody. All you can do is share the gospel. But what we need to realize is never count out the fact that God may be using you at that moment to bring a sinner to salvation. He's using your lips, your mouth, your witness, your testimony, your story, your life. He may be using you at that point in time, and it may take multiple, multiple times. It may mean that you have to patiently endure with that person, and God may be using you and your steadfast involvement in their lives to bring about the salvation of a lost sinner. So two responses. First, contempt. from my nose. Second, curiosity. I want to know a little bit more. Thirdly, we see conversion. You actually see salvation. Verse 33, So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, some men, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Okay, we don't see a major gospel revival here in Athens. We don't see mass conversions. We don't see all these people getting saved. Now, when Paul goes to Corinth, He does see that. He spends about a year and a half in Corinth. He stays there. He sees a lot more evangelistic fruit. He raises up leaders, but he only sees a few converts in Athens, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes you share the gospel, and only just a few people may receive Christ. You can't control the results, and God in his sovereignty has placed us here in northeastern Colorado, and here's the problem. I think a lot of times, especially as pastors, we look at what God's doing elsewhere, God's doing a work in Colorado Springs. God's doing a work in Chicago. God's doing a work in Florida. God's doing a work in Seattle. God's doing a work in China. And praise the Lord that he's doing a work in those places. Yes, we want to see God do a work all over the world. But how often do we look over there and we don't look right here? Yes, I pray for revival to break out in northeastern Colorado. Yes, I want there to be tons of people get saved in in northeastern Colorado. But we have to realize this is where God has planted us. This is the soil to where God has planted us. And we need to be faithful, not in those other places, but faithful right here in northeastern Colorado. 1 Corinthians 3.7 says this, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. You may be a planter. You may be a sower. You may be a waterer. You may come along and you may do all these things to help a person understand the gospel, but there is one thing you absolutely cannot do. You can't cause the growth. You can't convert anybody. Only God can do that. Now, let me take the pressure off you this morning. Can I just take the pressure off? Can I just give you a little secret? You don't save anybody. Isn't that great news? Here's evangelism share the gospel, and leave the results up to God. Sometimes people respond, sometimes they won't, but you can go out in the confidence to know that if you go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, you go out and share the gospel, you go out and engage, God will accomplish his purposes. You may be sowing. It could be like, you know, you've been witnessing to a guy for 30 years, and all of a sudden they come to church, and I preach, and they get saved, and you're like, oh man, how come Sean got the joy of leading to the Lord? I've been, I've been praying for him for 30 years. Well, You were watering for 30 years. And all of a sudden, God gave the increase. God is the one who does the growth. So, contempt. Sometimes you'll get contempt when you engage lost culture. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't care what you're saying. Sometimes you'll get curiosity. I want to know more about what you're saying. Sometimes you'll see people get saved. I pray all the time. It's the third one, but not always. Now, when I was growing up in uh, Texas, in junior high, right before we left to come to Colorado, um, I had a friend named Muhammad. We called him Mo, for short. Mo was from India. Mo was a Hindu, and we were getting ready to move to come to Colorado. And a few days before we moved, Mo came over to my house. And one thing you have to know about Mo is that he was an avid reader. Would read all the time, and that kid could read like there was no tomorrow. And so he would come over to my house. We play basketball. And so here we are in my room sitting in my room my bible on my desk me on the bed he goes takes my bible begins to flip through it and read my bible what in the world do i do at that moment one thing for which i'm ashamed of and it's haunted me ever since i looked at him and said let's not read the bible let's go out and play basketball And we went out and played basketball. Here was a Hindu in my bedroom with the Bible open and I didn't open my mouth and lead him to the Lord. Now, would he have trusted Christ? I don't know. But in that moment, I think I quenched the Holy Spirit and it's haunted me ever since. And I've never seen Mo again except through Facebook. Praise the Lord for Facebook. Two years ago, Mo and I reengaged on Facebook. Now, I haven't shared the gospel with him and I'm not sure exactly where this relationship is going. He's a doctor in Chicago, a very smart, accomplished doctor. But I think the Lord may be leading me to ask him some questions about India since we're going to India in April. Just to open some doors and say, Mo, I haven't talked to you for 30 years, but I'm going to India and I'll be up front with you. I'm going there to share the gospel. Can you give me any advice as a Hindu? Who knows what he's going to do? He may not respond back to me, but it's those moments where you need to just take a risk and engage people a lot of you are on Facebook Facebook is kind of like the Mars Hill of of the day back then maybe some of you aren't on Facebook but what what context what sphere of influence do you have where you can take a risk where you can open your mouth and share sometimes you'll receive contempt other times curiosity other times conversions But God is calling you to be missional, to take a risk, to be a missionary to your culture and engage lost people with the gospel. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We are going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. And one thing about the Lord's Supper that I want you to totally understand is this. You don't have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be sinless to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace where we come and we realize our brokenness, we realize our sinfulness, we ask forgiveness, we confess our sins, and Christ in His mercy meets us in the Supper and we're reminded of His once and for all death on the cross to take away all of our sins. So there is a time of examination where we examine ourselves. But there's also the freedom to know that Christ's love in cross covers a multitude of sins. And I can just be real honest with you this morning. This is a very, very hard sermon series for me to preach. And sometimes I wish God had just told me not to do it. Because I am nowhere near being an example in this area of evangelism. And I sometimes feel like a fool and a fake for standing before you as your pastor knowing that in my heart I'm not doing what I should be doing. So I'm coming and just confessing before you as my, as my fe- church family that I am not anywhere near where I need to be. But that's not holding me back from coming to the Lord's table and receiving the grace that comes through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. So maybe you just need to do business with God this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Maybe there's somebody on your heart that God is just, like maybe there's a mo in your life that you just right now need to intercede for them, need to pray for them, need to make a commitment to engage them. Whatever God's calling you to do, maybe you've been faced with contempt or maybe there's someone that's curious and you need to just take it further. Just take a few moments this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper to engage your sovereign God and ask him to give you what he alone knows you need.